<laughs> to suddenly run out of warm water, that's everyone's worst nightmare. Luckily, at Benjamin Franklin Plumbing, we're always available when you need us. For all your water heater issues, Benjamin Franklin Plumbing are the specialists you call when things go wrong. We offer electric, gas, power vent, and tankless heaters installation and repair. Call 319-365-6792. Benjamin Franklin Plumbing. If there's any delay, it's you we pay. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to oh, an man. end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into the Garden of Doom. This week we're welcoming in Ryan Musgrave Evans. He is an author. He's coming to us from Melbourne, Australia. Um, so some of you may know that uh, me from other places where my friend Jimmy T, who I call Jimmy Time, also from Melbourne. They, they don't know each other, I don't think, anyway. Um, but uh, Ryan comes to us from Victoria, Australia. He's got a diploma in education. He's been an educator most of his life. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Arts. Uh, also, he uh, was a student of philosophy from La Trobe University, uh, which is in Bandura, Bandura, Melbourne. I hope I'm pronouncing those places close. He's also been the private language tutor of Irish and Scots Gaelic, and that's going to come in very handy as he goes through his story and his research first, because a lot of that knowledge of the original languages uh, probably plays into his interpretations and his research. Um, I don't want to spoil it for him. He'll get to it very shortly, I'm sure, but it'll be better coming from him. 
Um, he's also a nurseryman, which I think, you know, in the U.S., where most of my listeners probably are, at least 50% of them, you may not know what that is, but that's someone who works in a tree nursery, in an arboretum. Um, so he's a caretaker of the flora of the world. Um, and uh, he is a fluent speaker of both both Irish and Scotch, uh, Scottish Gaelic Scotch. I've got Scotch on the mind most of the time. Uh, Scottish Gaelic. Uh, he had self-described insatiable preoccupation with comparative linguistics, philosophy, folklore, religious studies, and all research into the paranormal. So he fits right in here. Uh, the book that he's written most recently and that we're going to talk about probably mostly is entitled The Children of Orion, Finding the Crypto-Terrestrials. So if you're in this, you're listening to this show, you love this kind of stuff and you're in the right place. So Ryan Musgrave Evans, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to Garden of Doom. Hey, Jeff. Good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. No, thanks so much for, for coming in. And as you've described your book, you have basically divided up into three portions. Uh, you know, I'm going to obviously let you tell more of it uh, than, than I shall. But basically, the first portion is sort of your investigation and then your conclusions as a result of the investigation. And the, the final part is going to relay some of your own experiences. So uh, that is a gross oversimplification, obviously. Um, but again, it is your story to tell, not mine. So I'm going to let you get right into it. If, if there was any part of your bio that you would like to correct or elaborate on, um, welcome to it. Otherwise, you can just just lead in wherever you'd like. Yeah, cool, man. Um, no, that all sounds great, what you said. That, that's all good. Um, but uh, yeah, with the book, like, yeah, you're right to say that it was it's broken up into three parts. Um, and what I tried to do was, now I am... A lifelong experiencer of the race that I am investigating in the book. But what I tried to do was um, introduce people to the beings themselves in a more of an objective kind of way and approached it as an investigation or an exploration and a search for the particular entities that I know. And I decided that it would probably be best to leave my own experiences to the end of the book. And um, in, a, in a way, take people by the hand and attempt to show them through ancient times leading up to today that these beings can be found and are represented in folklore and also in the literature of ufology of today. Um, now, I've, I was, I've been heavily influenced in writing this book by two people, really, um, two researchers and um, figures in ufology, uh, Jacques Vallée, um, uh, especially in regard to him considering there to be a continuum experience from ancient times till today. Uh, for Jacques Vallée, he considered the, the terms that, that people in older times, particularly, say, in the fairy faith of Celtic countries and things like that, that the terms that they used in describing the, the non-human beings that people believed to exist in the world in those days are more or less identical to the terms that we use nowadays and the characteristics we attribute to the non-human entities in the modern UFO era. So, say, people normally say, say, post-1947, people say is the modern UFO era, post the Roswell crash. But, um, and what Jacques Vallée tried to do, and I think he did well, especially in his, in his seminal work, Passport to Magonia, was he demonstrated that there were many, many, many similarities between 
these sort of things and folklore, fairies or elves, often called, that would abduct people, that would influence the minds of, of mortals, that would um, interbreed with mortals and produce hybrid beings, things like this. And then he, he did a very good job, I think, in his book of, of, of making those parallels and drawing them with what's happening to people and experiences and, and in testimonies today. Um, now, Jacques Vallée went skewed towards maybe being sort of taking on a bit of a mystical or metaphysical or um, um, interpretation uh, or conclusion. He seemed to draw some conclusions that suggested maybe these beings aren't flesh and blood, nuts and bolts, that they're a little bit beyond our world in some way and maybe even beyond our comprehension as it stands. Mac Tonys, um, who unfortunately passed away in uh, 2009 as a very young man. He was only 34, I believe. Um, he had formulated what he called the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, or the CTH for brevity. Um, he was heavily influenced by Jacques Vallée himself. But he moved, and he himself acknowledged and recognised that there seemed to be some kind of, it was more than a coincidence that these beings are still being described now, maybe in slightly different terms because we're looking at them through different cultural glasses now. Um, but, uh, you know, borrowing a little bit beyond the superficial differences that there's a lot much more in common between, like, old characters from old mythology and folklore and the, the ETs or aliens of today. Um, but Mac Tony's took it back to a more nuts and bolts, flesh and blood look at it. He decided that there's not necessarily any need to suggest that the beings are magical or, or, or interdimensional necessarily or just metaphysical in some way that's incomprehensible to us. He said, no, hold on a sec, let's just bring this back and say maybe they are just flesh and blood beings. Maybe their intense interest in our genetics, which seems to be... Um, if one can infer from, you know, the plethora of, of um, interaction events, close encounters and abduction events that suggest that they may be in- interested in our genetics and perhaps even hybridization is a common theme running through these kinds of things as well. Or even, you know, in the old-fashioned kind of way, copulating with us, like in the uh, case of um, Antonio Velas Boas in 1957 in Brazil where he had this experience with a, a female uh, crypto terrestrial, we could say, after Mac Tonys or CT, um, and uh, or Peter Curry more recently in 1992 in a, in Sydney in Australia, they had interaction with a woman in that way that they seem to have this close genetic affiliation with us so much to the extent that they seem to be able to interbreed with us that they are at least the same genus as us that they are perhaps the same species, like a subspecies of ours, like so close, you know. Um, or we're a subspecies of them. Yeah, or that we're a subspecies of them, one could suggest as well. Or, um, but, uh, so Mac Tony's, yeah, he brought it back and he said, so he just said, for him it was hypothetical anyway, like he didn't necessarily believe the crypto-terrestrials existed. He just was sick of what he considered to be sort of like a, a dogmatic extraterrestrial hypothesis where Everyone presumes if there's craft zooming around our skies and we can't, and we haven't made them and we can't explain what they are, or we're seeing creatures that seem to be not Homo sapiens interacting with us, that they're going to be extraterrestrial. They're going to be not from the earth. And, and the suggestion often and presumption even further than that is usually that they're extrasolar, you know, that they're interstellar beings. They're not even from our solar system. They're from way out somewhere else. 
Uh, Mac Tony said, hold on a sec, why would they have interest in our genetics if that's the case? He said, maybe they're a sister species or something like that. Maybe they're from here. Maybe they have a robust technology that is aiding them in this kind of covert operation. It's long-standing, what would seem to be centuries or millennia standing, clandestine infiltration, um, manipulation, uh, and hiding at the same time as hiding from us in ways that perhaps their technologies are allowing them to do. Advanced technologies, keeping it nuts and bolts. That's what Mac Tony's was sort of about, um, suggesting that maybe they're living under the earth in our mountains, under our oceans, but are here and can affect our memories, can um, influence our thoughts, can uh, basically manipulate and control us so that we are unaware of their presence for the most part. And I'd like to infer that maybe something is happening to us when we consider that there's fractions of, 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 you know, uh, fractured memories perhaps still represented in some people or hypnotic regression maybe can uncover certain things that their technology has tried to cover up. Um, so I now, the, the beings that I have had interaction with all of my life, at first I thought they were elves or fairies. So the, in my third, I, I left my own experiences to the end, as I said before, because I wanted to demonstrate to people that there's evidence in the literature for these beings existing. And so I built what I call a crypto-terrestrial profile or CT profile through the book where I take ancient um, accounts of fairies or ancient taxonomies of different kinds of fairies or elves, but particularly what I focus on is what was called in Gaelic Nahuishlan, or the gentry in Ireland and Scotland, or Nashihan, the fairies, the elves, but particularly the race Nahuishlan that were considered to be tall, fair beings that whistled with subterranean dwelling, could... Um, influence and affect your mind uh, by using what were, what was called in those days glamouries or glamour or um, foyesive in Gaelic, you'd say, um, enchanted, sort of, um, lead you into false understandings and false beliefs, appear as to be people, other people that you know so as to gain your trust. It's yeah. a kind of doppelganger or in Gaelic, kolkoshikia, a co-walker, they're called I, in Gaelic. I've heard the glamour um, used in some uh, vampire mythology as well is sort of the same thing when they basically hypnotize someone. It's the, the, the glamour. The glamour, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the fairies and elves were, were famous for doing that in the Celtic fairy faith. Um, Jacques Vallée talks a lot about this kind of stuff as, as, as well. So I talk a bit about that in the book um, and particularly that, that race that's, um, that's whistled, that is subterranean, that is tall and fair, that can manipulate our minds and um, are also um, be able to turn invisible and would, in a kind of a poltergeist kind of fashion, be intensely curious and go for our belongings and throw things about and be mischievous and play tricks on us and go this trickster element. Um, so that's the main race that I'm dealing with. Anyone who's fairly... Um, uh, familiar with the testimony of Charles James Hall, who wrote the Millennial Hospitality books. Uh, he claimed to have been a weather observer in the United States Air Force um, in Nevada at, uh, at Nellis Air Force Base. I think he's at Creech Air Force Base, it's called nowadays, isn't it? Um, but uh, in the 60s, and he claimed to have regular and prolonged interaction with a group of beings that were tall and fair, chirped and whistled, subterranean dwelling would go through his belongings, uh, would influence his mind and remove his memories, um, uh, play tricks on him. Um, basically, 
in the first part of the book, I go through these this kind of juxtaposition of these two, what seem at first to be two separate things, but then I try to demonstrate they are one and the same. They are an ancient description and a, versus a modern description of a, a single race, what Charles Hall would call tall whites and what the Gales would have called Nahuishlan, the gentry. Uh, these are the same beings that I've been interacting with on my life as well, uh, much more intensely in the past, uh, how long now, like about eight or nine years maybe or something like that, than earlier in my life where, my, where the interactions were much more sporadic and um, much less intense and uh, much more sort of left up to me to, to try to interpret myself. And I, I went down channels of presuming that they were elves and fairies and things like that. And, it, and that uh, awoke in me an intense uh, passion and interest for Gaelic mythology and things like that when I was in my teens and in my 20s and, um, and Gaelic language and things like that as well, as you were talking about when you were introducing me that I've been learning uh, get the Gaelic languages for well, since I was about 19 or something as well. I'm 42 now. But um, so, uh, yeah, as I, and then these these people, these beings, Nahuishlan or the Tall Whites or whatever you want to call them, um, I, I begin with, as I'm building the crypto-terrestrial profile, I, I begin by using Charles Hall's descriptions in particular, um, bolstered by the old fairy descriptions from um, some of the old books written by uh, fairy researchers um, in in the uh, 20th century, and uh, also Robert Kirk, who was writing in the 1600s, Scottish minister, gave interesting descriptions of the Scottish elves or fairies that are comparable to this as well. Yeah, I think um, at this point we need to d define a couple of terms. First of all, I mean, I think anyone who's been listening to the show for a while for a while knows this, but you know, at, at, with any podcast or any medium, you you always always hope that you're going to get new listeners. So, crypto basically means hidden. Terrestrial means of the earth. So we're not talking about extraterrestrials. We're talking about hidden terrestrials, hidden beings that, that live in the earth, uh, whether we're a subspecies of them or they're a subspecies of us, whatever, chicken or egg, uh, cousins, um, sort of similar to some of the things that some of our, our archaeologists, anthropologists guests have talked about, uh, you know, when we keep finding different uh, forms of Hominids, oh, you know, you know, Denisovans, uh, the Homo floriensis, you, you name it. There's, there's more to come, uh, and probably others that are misclassified. Um, the other is the fairies themselves, because I think when some people hear fairies, they think Tinkerbell uh, or something like that, and that is that's the Disneyfication of fairies. The the, the brothers Grimm and, and much older, the fairies were not described as small diminutive creatures they were full-sized um much closer to elves um like maybe from lord of the rings or even in the tv show america gods where the the uh, leprechaun is uh you know uh you know a, a rather tall man with just with red hair so we're talking about the tr traditional uh terms for the the fair folk um if you're distinguishing between fair folk and fairies it's, it's really a false distinction unless in your mind you're separating between these larger full-sized uh beings versus you know the the tinkerbell sprite types um will-o'-the-wisps which are you know maybe related maybe not maybe myth maybe not but not not the topic of this discussion so with those points of clarification first i want to make sure that 
that Ryan agrees with that or, or has any corrections, and then we can sort of go from there. Oh, yeah, cool, Jeff. Um, yeah, well, in, in, in older works, in the older literature, we had people researching folklore like um, uh, Evan, Evans Vents, who wrote uh, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, um, and also you had Robert Kirk, I mentioned before, that wrote um, Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns and Fairies. The term in English, the term elf and fairy in those days was synonymous, interchangeable. Um, uh, I think, you know, one has a Germanic root and the other one maybe has a romance root or something like that, but they're basically like two, were two words for the same entities then and they've sort of, they've been divided nowadays and separated and categorised um, in folklore and whatnot into modern times. But, but yeah, for sure that, uh, yeah, like Tinkerbell or, or Santa's helpers at the North Pole and things like that. That's not what was meant at one stage by fairy and elf. And you're right, like the Nahuishlan, uh, the, the gentry in particular, that kind of fairy or elf um, is comparable to Tolkien's idea maybe of, you know, elves in the Lord of the Rings where you think of those kinds of tall, magical, um, um, interesting beings uh, that that are genteel in that kind of way, which is why they call them the gentry, I suppose. But um, now, yeah, so that that is an issue that I sometimes forget. Yeah, that I, I've gotten so used to reading, like, the older kind of folklore and stuff like that, that I've gotten so used to thinking of fairy and elf as meaning these kinds of other entities, and I'm forgetting about the more recent sort of pop culture ideas about fairies and elves and things like that. So cheers, yeah. yeah it's all right. I, I'm the medium here between the between the expert and, and the layperson, the casual uh, listener, so to speak. No worries. But, um, yeah, so uh, as I so I use the crypto terrestrial profile anyway to find other cases, uh, you know, through UFO, the UFO literature, where I go, is there evidence for other cases, other people claiming to have had interactions with beings that is similar to this in some way that we can we can find and match to it. And we say, you know, Charles Hall's tall whites, tall, chalk white skin, huge blue eyes, two to three times the size of our own, um, uh, very thin usually um, in build, uh, barking and chirping and whistling, but, you know, sort of like barking and growling languages and things like that as well. And then, you know, we'll say, well, what about the case of Antonio Villas Boas, where uh, where the woman he met had fine, fair, white hair, blonde white hair, like Charles Holder described, blue eyes, barking and growling. She wasn't very tall, not a very tall, tall wife. I think he said she was between four and a half and five foot tall or something like that. But um, Charles Hall himself mentions in his books that uh, they take a long time to grow. Um, and he talks about individuals that are like four and a half, five, five and a half, six foot, on and on and on, all the way up to 10 foot tall. By the time they get to 700 or so years old, they can be as tall as nine or 10 foot, he says. Um, so the Peter Curry case, tall, fair woman with huge blue eyes, again, fine, white blonde hair. Um, he didn't hear her chirping, but he did have an experience at another stage where, um, uh, he was regressed and heard them chirping around him again. So we're looking for these sort of common characteristics. And as we move through the different cases as well, the new cases that we find using the CT profile help to inform the profile further and help to build and flesh out a more and more um, intricate 
picture of the beans. And, uh, and then once I've, you know, so as I'm getting towards the final part of the book, and I'm hoping that people will be recognizing all of these parallels and that they, it's very likely not a coincidence to be finding all these beans. Uh, no, what, what, what seems to be an, un, a single underlying race behind a lot of this. Um, and of course that the poltergeist stuff gets brought back into it. Charles Hall had a lot of poltergeist like activity that he knew to be the tall whites doing it. And then we find in other ET related cases, this kind of parallel again with shadow people and poltergeist activity. And so that's where I get in, delve into like the case of Christopher Bledsoe senior and the Fayetteville incident where he had interactions with these beings that were tall, skinny beings. And then he had poltergeist and shadow people, etc. Um, then near, toward the end of the book, I let the cat out of the bag. Not that it's any real secret to people who watch my channel, maybe, or whatever. They know that I'm an experiencer anyway, but I don't mention that I am in the book itself until towards the end. Mm -hmm. When I feel as though I've already tried to get the readers to see that these beings are likely real, tried to prove beyond reasonable doubt to them that they're there, and so then my own claims become that much more palatable. Like I, I feel like if I present them straight out as they are in a vacuum, they're just too unbelievable. And I can understand that. I wouldn't believe them either if I hadn't experienced them so, myself, you know. So so that's basically the structure of the book, as you'd said, for the three parts, moving towards the end to my to finish with my own experiences. Do you think there's any d direct parallel with what your research and your encounters have um, uh, led you to conclude with, say, the, the, the legends of the Anunnaki, uh, the Nephilim, um, demigods re re really uh, you know i mean they're not all you know tall whites uh, they, but uh, i mean i think that there's no reason to consider that they wouldn't um i don't even know the right word melanate different uh, have different pigmentation in different parts of the world i mean you know in in northern europe they'd be white just like people you know are you know the evolve there were became white, you know, and 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 in the Middle East they, you know, you, you may get different shades, and in Africa you, you know you get darker shades, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, uh, I mean, if they are in fact terrestrials, um, that would make sense. Now, of course, if they've gone crypto and and they've been that way for eons, then they wouldn't, you know, they they probably are sort of almost albinoish, you know, uh, uniformly. Um, but going back. You know the, the thousands of years where some of these legends and and stories, scripture, if you if you would like, made it into into writing, written form. Um, do you think it might be one and the same? Uh, yeah, I'm of the opinion, which is for a lot of people a very boring one, that these guys are responsible for most of it. Um, and I say that's boring for a lot of people because. Uh, it's not boring for everyone. I don't find it a boring idea, and yeah. I'm sure there are people that don't find it boring as well. A common cause to a lot of paranormal phenomena across the face of the earth through time. Um, I find that intriguing. Yeah, well, uh, it's not supernatural. Uh, it's, not, it's not divine. It's uh, it's not uh, it's it's not alien. It's 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 something here just uh, that's under well, not undiscovered, but uh, undiscovered or unrealized by us. We've clearly been discovered by them, but it's. Earthbound, it's it's you know it's not as sexy. No, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and also, there's 
you know, the, the rich tapestry of folklore online relating to all the different kinds of alien races and different contactees and different researchers and, and different, well, the taxonomies, I suppose you'd call them, with them, and back histories and all this kind of stuff. I personally am very sceptical of a lot of it. Um, now, uh, that, and so that means I'm not, you know, overly popular often when I'm talking to people in the UFO community because a lot of the time I'm sort of like, ah, oh, I don't know, guys, you know, maybe there's some of this stuff is uh, true aliens that have no genetic connection to the Earth, no, no no evolutionary history with us or with the Earth itself, that have sophisticated, advanced propulsion systems that are zipping about into solar. Yeah, okay, maybe maybe there is that kind of stuff happening, but um, in my personal opinion, the vast majority of 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 this has been caused, not just the ET UFO related stuff, but also a lot of paranormal stuff across the board is is because of this particular race, a single race. Now there are other ones that are that are crypto terrestrials as well, but my book isn't just like that with the Jacques Vallee Mactoni's kind of vibe. It does get more complicated because evidence, as I show through the book, evidence suggests not only are they related to us but they are a kind of future version of us that has penetrated our ancient past to reinvigorate failing genomes as a future, as future versions of ourselves. That starts to get more complicated. Uh, so they are crypto-terrestrials in that they're indigenous to the Earth, and that's in, in keeping with Mactoni's original definition. But they are potentially describable as being extraterrestrials because they have been extraterrestrial for extended periods away from Earth in another future and return to their ancient home. Now, I, as I'm building my case, I demonstrate through cases where there's beings that have told this to experiences. Tall whites have, have met have, um, one ca particular case, the Avely case in England, um, where the, 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 the abductees, contactees, were taken aboard a craft after they drove into a mist in a car. Uh, this is from the 70s, this case. Um, and they had, they were, you know, had some kind of procedures done on them in a sort of stereotypical sort of ET interaction fashion. But then they were given tours of the ship. Uh, they asked questions. They were given answers. And one of the answers they gave was um, relating to uh, our future being their past um, and talking about themselves being of another time. Um, and I mean, I get more and more into the idea of that, of um, them not really being like a, a a species that's been existent here, extant here for millions of years, maybe having a kind of parallel evolution with us or um, interaction with us, maybe branching off at an earlier stage of our development or things like that, but more complicated, a return to reinvigorate. Uh, so that's where the story, you know, it, on the face of it, that this is where it gets... For the average skeptical person, this is where it gets even less believable, and I understand that, because uh, they're adding sort of more and more what seem to be fantastical elements to this is sort of starting to snowball. If you're just starting to be able to cope with ideas about crypto terrestrials, indigenous humanoids maybe being different versions of ourselves or something like us existing here and, uh, covertly, and you were buying that. Now, I've introduced this topic, and you're like, oh, no, this is just getting too, too, too full on for me. No, this I is the garden of doom. We we meander. We have different paths here. <laughs> yeah. I just uh, 
yeah, it's uh, slowly um, a slowly build a broader and broader and more a more detailed picture of the beings and their histories as can, I go along. Can I ask you a question um, about their leaving and coming back? And and maybe this is jumping the gun to the to the conclusion, or, or maybe you don't know the answer. Um, but do you think that they left and came back because they're coming back to reinvigorate? this world they're their cousins or do you think they're coming back because they didn't meet the success they wanted that they ran out of the resources they needed wherever they went to and they're coming back out of necessity coming back out of necessity okay yeah the, the we we are the healthy free-range ancient humans to them we ah. we are we are uh, and an element of this is that and um that's the one I prefer, yeah, I do, by the I way. Do mention, I do mention it. Oh, sorry. That's that's the one I prefer because it's Garden of Doom, so we want the cynical view here. But <laughs> yeah, but I didn't lead um, you with the answer. <laughs> yeah, but but that that is what's going on there, where they um, now they as well as unfortunate accidental mutations, incidental mutations, just over their tens of thousands of years that they've been separate separated from the Earth. Um, that's unfortunate and that's not helpful, but they've also been indulging in large amounts of deliberate genetic engineering, which has caused huge amounts of unforeseen consequences to their health. Um, now, they, they can live for prolonged periods. Um, if they're lucky, uh, they could live as long as seven to 800 years. Now, part of the problem as well is that they've extended their lifespans um, through deliberate manipulation and interference, and and I've discovered they have discovered that the genomes uh, should not be tampered with. In that they're a holistic, systemic, naturally evolved system. And if you think that you're a clever monkey and that you're going to actually prolong your lifespan or or remove certain dise- uh, diseases or weakness um, and improve it somehow in this way that there'll be other consequences some of them for them are that they are more susceptible to certain diseases another one is they take long periods of time to heal if they're hurt uh like if and and some kind of injuries to us would be nothing much like a broken bone say you know reset it after a while it heals nothing to them that can be lethal just a broken bone so So they are frail they're frail the metaphor of vampirism sunlight you know, something very trivial kills them. That could be a that could be a metaphor. You know, because vampires also live forever. And I'm not saying that a, a vampire is a crypto terrestrial. I'm saying that a that, that people might have interpreted or the origin of the vampire myth may have come from from that. And and just like you know, uh, uh, pocket full of posy. That that song is is to make kids get used to the black death and burning of bodies. And that's why the rose petals were everywhere. The, uh, the the sun burning these people away, rather trivial things, killing these, you know, whatever, the pillars of the community or the landed gentry or whatever uh, is explained away and, and that became that myth. I don't know. So when you talk about the, the they can live to be seven or 800 years, I just can't get away from sort of like the original biblical begets and begattings in their ages and the old Sumerians and the old Egyptians and 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 all of that and all and and it, it just it all sounds so similar and parallel i mean it the you know it, it goes in different directions obviously but 
you know, it, it, it can all sort of be reconciled as, as, as explained this legend as these long-lived individuals. And then it wasn't really a flood or it wasn't really Sodom and Gomorrah or it wasn't really a comet or, you know, whatever it was. It, or, or it wasn't, or Atlantis didn't sink. They left. They left and this is how they explained the Southern departure. They, they, they left for whatever the reasons were. Uh, so that, that's my little digression, but, uh, you know, it's my footnote of Jeff's thoughts. Yeah, no, no, that's cool. That's, uh, but I, I, I'm convinced myself as well that um, a lot of our ancient myth, if not all of it, but at least most of our ancient mythologies, folklores, um, scriptures, etc., are based on these people. These dudes interfering in our past, interacting with us um, as ancient versions of themselves. So they sort of we've been worshiping a future version of ourselves uh, in this sort of strange narcissistic kind of way. Um, it's all kept in the family, uh, but we're all related. They come back. They can't. Um, they haven't worked out permanent ways of curing their pathologies or maladies that are um, affecting them, haunting them. So they need to reinvigorate themselves with healthy humans, healthy in the sense that we are, there hasn't been much, if any, tinkering. There may have been a tiny bit. Some evidence suggests there's been maybe a little bit of them tinkering with our DNA slightly, maybe. But the whole point of us is that we haven't been genetically engineered, that we are, for the most part, naturally evolved, a naturally evolved species. We're, we're their and homeopathic so vaccines. Pardon? We are their homeopathic vaccines, or at least that's the theory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, they have to go back to um, uh, a, a period of time before humans started genetic, en genetically engineering themselves and interfering, which we're sort of on the border of, on the cusp of now. Sure. Uh, it's all increasing our lifespans and, uh, you know, CRISPR. Um, removing cancer and uh, making sure that we're not susceptible to this, that, and the other disease. And for them, that is bad in the sense that we're meant to be kept pure, pure just in a sense of right. naturally evolved. They, they, like um, you said, they need the organic, free-range, um, non-GMOs, <laughs> uh, yeah. homo sapiens sapiens. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's... And, and then and the idea, like you were saying before, Jeff, the, the Anunnaki and these kinds of ideas from ancient Mesopotamia and di different people and, uh, you know, French community writers and speculators and um, researchers and whatnot um, suggesting that, that the Anunnaki were some kind of ancient astronauts or some kind of alien civilization or something that, that produced us or spawned us or whatever. Um, I, I think it's plausible that those people... But that may be some kind of echo or old representation of the crypto-terrestrial presence, reinterpreted, and um, you know, and 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 the Bible itself um, is based. A lot of the of Bible stories are based on uh, you know earlier forms, like like the ancient Egyptian mythology, Sumerian or Babylonian, Sumerian, um, Assyrian, and, and whatnot as well. Um, and so this is all sort of like a game of telephone, sort of being passed down uh, the an ancient echo of old contact. But the point is as well is that they're still here. So you don't necessarily need to rely on ancient scripture. You can ask them, you know, which I think, and I think because they're here anyway and they still are. And I think they, this, this is another factor as well. Like 
Oh, first, firstly, I'll just quickly say they do seem to be interacting with paranormal researchers more in the last few years, in my opinion, than for a long time before. So you're getting like little groups of guys with devices wandering around. Like I, I often point people towards the Twin Paranormal YouTube channel, which is a group of young guys that are probably in their twenties. They look that wander around from week to week, just going to haunted places. Um, consider themselves to be interacting with deceased humans. But when I watched it, I'm ticking off all these points on the crypto terrestrial profile. And in my opinion, they are, for the most part, at least, interacting with crypto terrestrials that are cloaking and produce and, and, and interfering with their and speaking to them through their devices, like the word banks that they've got and all that kind of stuff. Um, and this is happening more and more. Uh, as they seem to be working towards some kind of revelation or disclosure, um, in my opinion. But um, uh, now, I was, I was going to say something else, but I've, I've got a blank. I'm drawing a blank. What were we talking about? Sorry, I'm rambling a bit. Well, that's probably because if I, I probably knocked you off course, but we were talking about that they were the, we were sort of their free-range uh, homeopathic organic vaccines. And I, and I can't help but, I don't know if this is going to bring you back to your path, but I can't help but wonder that, since the industrial revolution, especially the last hundred years, if you know we're we're making it so that their situation has gotten more desperate, maybe more time sensitive, that we are on the cusp of things, we are sort of polluting ourselves with more and more types of things that you know beyond tobacco and peyote and things that are you know you know whether they're hallucinogenic or not, they're natural, um, yeah. you know, and and so maybe that's why your people are bumping into them more often than they were before. Uh, but I think before we got you off the path, I was sort of just uh, doing the parallels with the 700-year, 900-year-old folks and, uh, and Anaki and, and the Babylonians, whatnot. But uh, I think you were going to, you were, before that, you were talking about how we don't need to guess, we can ask them. And, and I think you were leading up to maybe the methodology of helping those encounters occur. Uh, well, actually, I wasn't going to, but I will say, I will say that that um, uh, people, people, I don't know these guys. I've, I've got no affiliation with these guys. But anyone listening to this, if you just go to be on YouTube and look at Twin Paranormal, you've got this group of young guys. Their methodology, I think, is just perfect for interacting with crypto terrestrials. Even though, as I said, they don't know that they're interacting with crypto terrestrials. But, the, but you see, the crypto terrestrials, and this is actually, I'm getting leading back now to, I remember now what I was going to say. <laughs> okay. um, they, they are very happy to play inside our belief systems if it facilitates some kind of effective, meaningful communication and interaction with us. So they are very happy to pose as ghosts or deceased humans if they think that we wouldn't really get what they actually are or to maintain the kind of covert side of things. It's their policy to not actually let the cat out of the bag anyway. So pretending to be other things or taking on the mantle of other understandings that we have in our uh, vocabulary of ideas that we that are already represented to us, posing as angels, as demons, as um, fairies or elves, as ghosts, like deceased humans, to interact with us. Um, and you get that repeated through different cases. Um, now, for those, but before I leave that about the Twin Paranormal group, for people that are interested in trying to contact crypto terrestrials, if you watch Twin Paranormal, they are so polite. They wander to new places. They introduce themselves. 
they explain the instruments they have to whoever or whatever is there, ex- apologize for their presence and their intrusion, and they have this kind of protocol that they've invented themselves that seems to work. Um, and the CTs even say things to them, we like you, you are so nice when they're talking through their devices and stuff like that. Um, uh, whereas you get a lot of other paranormal investigators that are more brash and, and, and brazen and they bust down doors basically and, and declare to the beings that they're there and that the beings better respond or they're going to get it. Or they demand them to leave the vicinity or try to bully them and, and order them around and you're not going to get anywhere then. Or you might get a terrible fright actually. They may really scare the... The Jesus out of them. They, <laughs> they, they, they prefer a degree of reverence. Yes. Um, well, yes, yes, or, or just all politeness. Well, you could look at it either way. I mean, in the end, it's it's very easy to be unkind to them because they, in the sense of how of what kind of words you use to describe them and things like that, because because they don't make it easy for us because they have been terribly manipulative. They can be aggressive. They the the technologies that they use in their helmets that I call telepath tech in the book that Charles Hall calls electronics. You know, they're no more or less naturally psychic or telepathic than we are, but they rely on these technologies they wear in their helmets to, and they have to train, they require, it seems, they require a lot of training to be able to use these devices, to speak into your mind, to project thoughts into your mind, abstract ideas, um, images into your mind, uh, fear, visceral fear into your mind to repel you or expel you from places that where you've come too close maybe to one of their underground habitations where they are or an area where their children are playing. Um, they can project this kind of fear, which you find in, you know, the Skinwalker Ranch case, which is um, a, a definite, definite crypto-terrestrial uh, case, the Skinwalker Ranch. The Mothman stuff that uh, John Keel wrote about, definitely crypto-terrestrial stuff. I, talk, I go into those two cases in the book and my reasons for believing that these those cases are crypto-terrestrial. They just hit all the... CT profile points basically as you're moving along. Um, real, the, the, real quick, could you just give a brief on uh, on what is the Skinwalker Ranch case and what is the Mothman case for those who don't I, know? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, well, the Skinwalker Skinwalker Ranch, uh, the, the ranch in, in Utah, um, called Skinwalker Ranch because the, the, the Utes believed in um, a certain kind of witch that could change shape and, uh, and Skinwalker is this kind of entity that was meant to be a negative force that uh, could take on the shape of animals. Um, but there's a particular ranch that has been haunted by poltergeist activity, by shadow people, by what would normally be considered, you know, more stereotypical sort of ET UFO related activity like craft, um, uh, people having their minds manipulated, fear put in their minds, even more cryptic type phenomena where people have seen, um, you know, like large, previously thought extinct canid-type creatures like giant wolves or giant weird dogs with big bushy tails that look like something, some kind of megafauna from tens of thousands of years ago or something, Um, or even small dinosaur-like creatures and things like that that will be seen, seem to be physical, maybe attack livestock, be chased and then just disappear like Scotty's beamed them up or they've been annihilated somehow like they've been produced and then annihilated like they're not real life forms in some way or um, perhaps a tool for intimidation by a, a higher 
which is what I talk about in my book as well, that these kinds of cryptids sometimes are like a, another tool in the crypto-terrestrial kit for intimidating us to remove us and expel us from areas that are too close to their habitations. But um, George Knapp and Colin Callagher wrote uh, the famous book Hunt for the Skinwalker. Jeremy Corbell um, made a documentary very recently about, oh, how old is that now? A few years old now, maybe, uh, based largely on George Knapp and Colin Callagher's book. Um, people who are interested will be able to find that book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, uh, on Amazon, and that's that's uh, really a good read and, and, and necessary item for people to have. But um, yeah, George Knapp and Jeremy Corville are everywhere now. Just so that people know, I'm recording this October 17th, 2021. I'm not sure when it's going to uh, drop, but George Knapp has been on all the docuseries. He's the, the reporter, investigative reporter out of Las Vegas, who's um, really pursued uh, the UFO story uh, far and wide. And Jeremy Corvell has been a researcher who's made uh, documentaries and has gotten uh, some prominence now. They're both involved with the, uh, uh, what's it, the Alan J. Nayak uh, project, uh, uh, Big Bigelow and uh, Bass and uh, a bunch of other organizations. So if you've recognized those names, it's because you've heard them recently. Uh, obviously this, uh, well, not obviously, but this aspect of their work probably predates their their notoriety now, but maybe that only enhances the reasons to check out some of the older stuff. Yeah, for sure. And and George Knapp and Colin Callagher, the Irish NIDS scientists, National Institute for Discovery Science, uh, which is uh, a, a group funded and financed, and I think by um, Bigelow, Robert Bigelow, the billionaire. He's a paranormal buff. And um, he was the brainchild of, it's the brainchild of him, I, I believe, for the most part, or maybe completely, NIDS, N-I-D-S. Um, now, yeah, Colin Callagher was a head scientist in that group, and George Knapp uh, and Colin Callagher are uh, quite close. They just wrote another book again together, uh, which is available on Amazon now as well, called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, um, which I just bought a copy of because I'm interested in reading that as well. But um but, uh, yeah, this is the crossover point, um, really. Here, what we have here is that I think more and more people are coming to understand and appreciate that genuine um, non, what, what you might call non-human, even though really they are humans, I suppose, uh, sort of but sort of non-human or crypto-terrestrial or maybe extraterrestrial interaction and presence is accompanied with, what would normally be categorized as haunting phenomena, that, that, that these things go hand in hand, that the, that the crypto-terrestrials or extraterrestrials, if you prefer calling them that, um, that a residue of, of their presence and a consequence of interacting with them is what would normally be thought of as ghost-like uh, phenomena. Um, poltergeist activity, like we were talking about before, um, disembodied voices, uh, laughter, music, um, intrusive thoughts. Um, well, that's like the Mothman in uh, West Virginia, right? That's sort of more of the ghostly apparition, yeah. uh, luminescent, flying, you know, can't quite focus in on uh, the look kind, kind of um, entity being. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, this with what um, what the what the beings themselves, who, who told me they're called the Majina. So these are the tall whites of Charles Hall. Charles Hall presumed them to be extra 
solar aliens. He thought maybe they were from Arcturus system, but it was a guess. Um, he had a couple of reasons for thinking that because at one stage the um, theodolite that he'd used to measure the a distance the balloons were flying across the sky when he was doing weather observation uh, for the USAF. Uh, at one stage, one of them had used it, and when he looked back through it, it was pointed toward Arcturus, and I think there were a couple of other little hints he thought would get into him that maybe they were from Arcturus, but he asked them where they were from, and they were evasive. They wouldn't tell him. Now, it never occurred to him they might be indigenous to this planet. Um, now, and they are. Uh, and, and, my, and as I show in my book, I'll try attempt to show, and it's up to readers to decide how compelling the argument is and the, and the evidence I lay out. And then I've got another book on the way that will bolster all this as well. But um, these guys, the, the tall whites or the Majina, which I spell M-A-J-E-E-N-A, which is just a spelling I coined to try and mimic the, the way they've been pronouncing it, uh, which is also, I think, the same word as Wanjina, which is the from the... the um, the rock art in the Kimberley, ancient uh, stone art in uh, in uh, Western Australia, um, where you've got these people that are interested in um, ET kind of stuff, often uh, associated these things with ETs because you know this rock art, these beings look quite stereotypically like like aliens, um, big eyes and, and big uh, heads and thin necks, and uh, also like a circular kind of thing on their chest. And this is all very interesting because the beings I've seen myself, that's what I was going to say, they use what they call mesmerization. And that's the word they used with me as well when they were apologizing to me for using it. They said, we apologize for the mesmerization. We apologize for the memory alteration. And I said, well, that's all right, dudes. You probably know better than I do about what's going on. And, and uh, it's up to you to decide what, what kind of memories or thoughts I can deal with. Um, now, they, yes, use this kind of technology in their helmets to manipulate us. And as I was saying before, you know, some people I talk to about this and some people online and some people I know respond in a very fearful, aggressive kind of way where they and, and um, just really miffed, basically, that this is happening to us. If they, if they either don't believe it, which is fair enough, or if they do believe it or consider or are on the fence with it, they are resentful immediately. They go there. Other people are just filled with wonder and go, this is really, really interesting. If this is true, um, I'm happy about this, you know. Um, but that kind of negative response is there, and and which is fair enough. I mean, it depends on how you want to look at it. It depends on how, how forgiving you are, perhaps, or it depends on your fear level as well because it's a natural response, of course, to the unknown Um is to be fearful and aggressive, uh, but um, in my, I mean, I probably would say this, but um, but I'm happy about my experiences, and I am very, very happy and positive about the crypto terrestrials being here because um, they do represent a kind of gauge for us to measure how whether or not we're going too far with our own technological sophistication. At what point do they decide to intervene and cap it to protect their own home because they're present here, to protect us as free-range ancient humans to them, whom they require to be present and healthy as well? Um, and I, I understand that it's it's very easy to be negative about it and say these people are manipulative. They've been pulling the wool over our eyes. They've been 
influencing our cultures, they've been influencing our world. And also in the interactions themselves, and in the, the ones I've given in the book, there's a lot of this, where the tall whites, the beings themselves, come across as being patronizing, arrogant, assuming, uh, you know, like presumptuous kinds of um, manipulative, you know, not necessarily very positive adjectives. Um, but as I try to communicate in the book and I do on my channel as well, they have run the whole gamut of different kinds of personalities like we do ourselves. Some of them are more cruel, some of them are more compassionate. They have a priestly class. They have their own kind of spirituality. Um, they have a very sophisticated, stratified military. And they have certain individuals in that, just as we do ourselves, that might be, one could suggest, less spiritually advanced than other members of our own society, those that are represented in our militaries, especially at high levels. Um, more cold, ruthless kinds of humans or marginal or tall whites. Um, so it takes all sorts. So you can't just tar them all with the same brush, like mm. you can't with us. Uh, so they're quite compli complicated, just as we are. You know? Sounds like the Mimbari from Babylon 5. Okay. Babylon 5, I only ever watched the first few episodes of that. I'm not, yeah. not up with that one. That's actually one I don't know about, but I am a bit of a sci-fi fan otherwise, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a it's a it's a dated watch because it's it's very nineties and it was very low budget, but uh, I don't know. It's a sentimental favorite of mine. But. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so oh, I know what I want to ask you. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, you know, but you're you're not you know you're not going into the whole you know that there's reptilians or anything like that, uh, or even you know bloodlines, but that there may be some sort of from their perspective, gentle manipulation, from some of our perspectives, uh, maybe it's a fear or exaggeration or just the unknown. Any manipulation is bad manipulation, but it's not like there's a star chamber kind of cabal, you know, uh, toying and tinkering with us. While there may be tinkering, it's it's uh, it's more to prolong their own um, survival on, on, on Earth. That's right, yeah. They're, they're, they're driven by... Um, a need to survive um, and they've done what they had to do which is uh, return to to a, a different version of their own ancient path own ancient past to get first hand access to the old DNA which what? they can't they, they can't um, tinker anymore just continuously veers off course every time they attempt you know uh, genetic manipulation but with the reptilian kind of thing, yeah, the, I, this is where I get myself in trouble as well. I don't believe... I mean, that there might be some kinds of life forms out there that are, just happen to be, you know, like parallel or convergent evolution with creatures on this earth that we're just... With the we call reptiles. Um, but what... And uh, if there is, you know, in the infinite depths of the cosmos, well, there probably is somewhere. I mean, who am I to say there isn't? Whatever, you know. But the idea of this kind of reptilians from Draco, which is, <laughs> how's that for a weird coincidence as well? The reptilians just happen to be from Draco, the dragon. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. But anyway, yes, I, I'm very, I, I, I shouldn't laugh, but I am um, not on board with that kind of stuff. Uh, reptilians, now there are people who have had interactions with crypto-terrestrials and believe they're interacting with reptilians probably. Um, in this, and especially if they're primed with the folklore 
relating to this, and when I say folklore, I mean internet folklore, um, relating to reptilians in the sense that there's a suit that I call a Boas suit, B-O-A-S, and I named it after Antonio Villas Boas, mm. a guy in Brazil in 1957 who was working on his tractor uh, at night on his farm to escape the heat of the day. And um, he saw a red star that landed. It was a craft. It was wrestled on board by um, these beings in dark suits. And, he, and as I said before, he was taken into a chamber and there was a woman, blah, blah, blah. But uh, these suits. Now, so I call these suits boa suits. Um, now, they recur through crypto-terrestrial cases. So you've got the you got Chris Bledsoe's case of um, where he had, where he and his son saw, uh, like in the Fayetteville incident, um, where they um, saw these beings, small beings uh, with glowing red eyes that could cloak, gallop about on all fours like a deer, but were humanoids. Uh, um, and then they, and then Chris Bledsoe as well saw tall, seven foot skinny beings as well, and the beings told him that the other ones were their children. Um, the case of Kelly Kale with his dark skin tight suits with glowing red eyes. Um, uh, Charles Hall's case as well uh, is less obvious where these, these suits do occur, but it's less obvious because, and I talk about this in my book, the case of Charles Hall as the weather observer in the 60s, the, he coined the term tall whites, by the way. Um, uh, before that, people normally refer to them more often as Nordics uh, in the literature, but um, uh, because they kind of look a little bit like they're Scandinavians or something, maybe because they're tall and thin and fair and blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, in his fifth book called The Greys, where he thought he was interacting with another race of beings, I delve into that a bit in my book and try to demonstrate that, no, these were tall whites as well, but they were wearing these boas suits, these dark suits. Um, and uh, now these, these crop up a lot. And their capabilities are that... Um, levitation, cloaking, intangibility so that they can pass through solid objects, telepath tech in their headset, uh, a large type of proboscis, like a nose-type piece that fits over the front of the helmet and de- hangs down their face for um, uh, sound mimicry and um, uh, what would you call it, like reverberations and um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, uh, resonate, to resonate. And it's a kind of technology for them to mimic and produce huge amounts of different sounds. They themselves have much have much more flexible vocal cords, cords than us and can produce lots of different sounds that we can't anyway. But, but then this is augmented by this technology where they can bellow and scream and roar and create these incredible sounds that carry huge distances. Um, and they... Uh, and they also use camouflage languages as well, just as an aside, and mimic earth sounds. Their natural spoken language sounds sort of like, to our ear, something like Japanese. I thought it was Japanese when I first heard it. The Sierra sounds that were recorded by um, Ron Moorhead and Al Berry um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the early 70s are an ex- excellent example of tall white language, not Sasquatch. And I don't talk about that in this book. But I do on my channel and in my second book, I will. Ron Moorhead, I've talked to, and I said, this is not Sasquatch. I don't know whether Sasquatch exists or not. I wouldn't have a clue. But um, and, and this doesn't necessarily mean Sasquatch doesn't exist. But 
but the Sarah Sounds are definitely not Sasquatch. Uh, um, and uh, there's been numerous attempts to describe the sound of the tall white language through the literature, and people say sounds like Japanese, sounds like Korean, one guy said. Um, but then, then mixed with animal sounds, barking and growling and whistling and attempts to copy our own sound, sounds, cats meowing, uh, whatever, does the trick for them to... Um, like the camouflage languages, basically, mm-hmm. you know, intricate codes that are like artificial systems to another way to remain covert. You know. But um, but these suits, anyway, these suits that are black or grey have like a circular um, technology on their chest. Not that doesn't glow like Iron Man, but <laughs> black as well. Um, but maybe some kind of power source. I would like who I don't know. But um, these suits, you're more likely to have an interaction with a tall white looking like that. With prosthetic claws on their fingers, they have four long fingers, uh, prehensile, uh, that can oppose each other with a split down the middle of their palm, so the four fingers reach out, and their thumb is a tiny little thing, vestigial thing further up their hand, hmm. and they actually do all their work with the four fingers, but when they're wearing these suits, they wear two-inch prosthetic claws. Um, so you've got these tall, skinny glowing red-eyed beings with prosthetic claws that can levitate. When they levitate, they sort of uh, become nebulous and it can almost look like sometimes they have wings. So this is where Mothman has come from as well. This is their, their military-grade suits um, where they're basically super, they're super soldiers if they're wearing these suits, basically. They themselves don't have the same kind of muscle density as we do. They can move a lot faster. They can run at incredible speeds and move faster than we can. And they have a sort of like a twitchy kind of out way about them um but their physical strength is not as great as ours but if they're wearing these suits they are far beyond us in physical strength and um and they gallop around on all fours their arms are lo- or can their arms are longer in relation to their body than ours and galloping around on all fours is something that comes naturally to them and uh but people see them these suits and i think sometimes that's what people are calling reptilians and also um well, the way you describe Another the hands, idea. or at least the gloves in the suit, sounds a little dinosaur-y. So, you know. Yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Really long hands, long fingers, longer palms than ours. Um, uh, now, um, and then there's another kind of, or well, there are a couple of other kinds of races. I don't talk about them much in this book, but um, that have, there are other kinds of future humans that have, that are smaller, more like greys or whatever in the ufology. One kind grey, the other kind more a dark brown colour. Um, like the, the, an example of the dark brown coloured one would be like the Virginia incident from the 90s in Brazil where these small brown, there was a UFO crash, small brown creatures with oily skin, large claws, not prosthetic claws in this case, real claws, um, big eyes that glow red at night as well, uh, sort of like ridges on their skulls. Um, they look kind of reptilian too but they're another kind of future human um but uh yeah so the reptilian thing is um is sort of like a misunderstanding that has then in my opinion that has then fueled a kind of narrative a parallel narrative that's just a fantasy uh and in my opinion as well mantis beings are likely uh the crypto terrestrial tall white um medics of an advanced age that I've had interactions with, where they wear black lenses over their over their eyes, 
Her eyes are normally blue, but the older male ones have pink eyes, actually. They turn pink. But the black lenses they put over the top of their eyes, which presumably is some kind of smart tech, some kind of medical, like providing them with information about the patient or who knows. But they, I've seen them put them in. I've seen one with one still in and the other one out as they're putting it in. Really long fingers with gloves, um, mouths covered, like our own medics, mouths covered, top of their head covered, black eyes, eight, nine, even ten foot tall, incredibly painfully thin, long fingers, long as they get older, not only do they become taller, but their faces become really long and their chins develop and become really heavy. So they end up with these long faces, huge black eyes, hanging hands, hunched shoulders. As they get older, they get they get all hunched over. I've done some drawings of, of that kind of thing. I think I've got one of them in my book. Um, and when I, when I saw these, I was like, well, that's still them. And then I went online and I was typing in mantis aliens and things like that. And I was finding drawings other people had done of what they were calling mantis aliens that look like tall white medics. So that's another one. So I think a lot of the ET folklore with all of these races all sort of fragmented in the folklore, it has its origin in one race for the most part. They're just confusing a different type of uniform for a different race, much much the way someone that maybe if they saw a police officer in tactical gear and a firefighter going in there may didn't know humans might think they were two different races yeah yeah for sure that's 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 my opinion yeah so i don't have uh yeah i don't believe in a a lot of the stuff that's online that's sort of running rampant online about all the different races and and the and the and the reptilians are from here and the and the um uh mantoids are from here and then there's these dudes from here and all that kind of stuff uh yeah I'm, i'm very skeptical about that yeah, and I think that the, from from the descriptions that you're giving and the the extensive detail, I think you're probably coming to the point where you're going to start to tell us about your encounters. But before we get there, I I would like you to go back to the back to the beginning and sort of tell some of the folks and me uh, some of the source materials, some of these fair folk tales and and books and sources and legends that people can familiarize themselves with and, and sort of get that basis, so the, the, that sort of root information that, that maybe started this pursuit of, uh, of uh, knowledge and, and inspiration for you uh, so that they can take a look at, you know, what, you know obviously these are pre-Tolkien because Tolkien was, I think, in the, the 50s or the 30s or yeah, anyway, the, the, the 20th century. Um, and obviously these things are probably from the, you know, whatever the... Uh, uh, BCE centuries. Uh, yeah, the, well, the, my main source, uh, as it was to Jacques Vallée, really as well, um, is the the Celtic fairy folk. Uh, and there are a few older older books about that kind of stuff that that are freely available. Um, I recommend to people that are interested in reading about the Celtic fairy folk um, to check out uh, the Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies. The Secret Commonwealth of elves, fawns, and fairies by a guy called Robert Kirk. And he actually uh, wrote that in the 1600s. Uh, He's a Scottish minister. Um, and he was writing about what the people in Scotland were claiming to be having experiences with, who a group of people that he was trying to describe. Now, the language in it is quite archaic and sure. quaint. 
Um, and it, it is a little bit of a, of a struggle sometimes to forge your way through some of these these weird ways of turning phrases and things like that. But that that little book is filled with interesting points and information. Um, there's a but the book um, by um, oh, for some reason I'm drawing a blank on his first name, but his surname is Evans Wentz anyway. Hyphenated Evans Wentz W E N T Z, who wrote um, a book called uh, The Fairy Faith. In Celtic countries, he wrote that in 1900. It was first published in 1911, um, and he was a researcher um, who travelled. He was American. He travelled to uh, the Celtic lands of the time that were still left that he recognised as being, uh, you know, still holding more of the old traditions relating to fairies and elves. So he, he went to Brittany and France. Uh, he went to Cornwall. In England, he went to Wales, he went to Scotland, he went to Ireland, he went to the Isle of Man, and he gathered up as much information as he could from as many people who claimed to know the old stories about the beings. But also, which is more interesting, is he interviewed people who were experiencers, who were claiming to be fairy or elf contactees or crypto-terrestrial contactees. Uh, you know, of the kind that nowadays people claim to be and, and, and UFO researchers, MUFON will go out and say, you know, someone claimed to have interaction with a being and they'll have their protocols for asking them this, that and the other. What did you see? Well, this guy was doing this kind of thing about the non-humans way back at the beginning of the 20th century. And that book um, is chock a block with really interesting information. Um, now, um, a lot of it as well, as you can imagine, when you're dealing with folklore, a lot of it um, is um, exaggerated or people have, have been trying to interpret or rationalise certain elements of it. And so there's a lot of fabrication and sort of fantasy and things like that creeping into it as well because, you know, humans obviously are storytelling animals and if we're presented with some kind of empirical evidence that has elements missing without explanation... Uh, we're no strangers to basically just starting to manufacture the, the missing pieces and, and decide on backstories and how different kinds of things are relating to others. And like we're doing today, like people are doing today with UFO stuff online, in my opinion, as well, with the folklore online. So th these kinds of books do have a lot of that kind of stuff in them as well, you know. But, um, but the most important way of dealing with them, I think, is to deal with them in concert with UFO experience or testimonies of today and look for parallels, which will help you to sort of shear off some of the, like chop off some of the maybe more fantastical elements to the to the mythologizing and things like that. Well, UFOologists but, have done the same thing. They have, they, they've just decided that the cause is, is extraterrestrial, uh, but they, they've often, they often look at the, fair folk and abductions and, and stories like that sort of being the same thing, but being evidence of UFO visitations and abductions. Whereas you're saying it, it is what it is. You're, you're, you're looking outwards. You should be looking inwards or sideways. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. They do, they do do that. Some people play that kind of thing down. Other people, you know, uh, really try to mine that old, folklore for any information we can use today some people are 
uh, I, I won't mention any names, or whatever, but, but but a particular ufologist that is very well known to everyone. Um, I was really surprised to hear him say recently that evidence for the kinds of beings that are interacting with us today doesn't seem to be very old. And I was like, don't you haven't you read anything about haven't you read Jacques Vallée? That's what I was thinking. You know, haven't you read about the fairy faith? You know, um, and this person was saying, you know, it's it's since the um, atomic testing. That they that we've had experiences like this before that no, but the evidence is there for this continuity. Well, that's a popular um, trope in in sort of you know modern days that you know that nobody outside of our you know planetary system or or even our atmosphere would take notice. But once we split the atom and blew it up, then all of a sudden they you know realized we were a threat and came down. So whatever, I guess it's like you know. Whatever brought someone to the party, you know, that doesn't mean that they're, they're still not going to bring good chicken wings at some point. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and, you, and you can imagine, I mean, it's Mac Tony's, you know, like I said before, Mac Tony's, um, he, you know, one of his main reasons for deciding they were more likely to be indigenous to this planet, as like you said, hidden terrestrials, cryptoterrestrials, is the DNA aspect, yeah, that they seem to be compatible with our genetics. But the other element he was talking about was he, he made reference to that kind of interest in our nuclear sophistication in particular um, and said, well, an explanation for them being particularly interested in that would be that they're here as well. You can imagine if, if, if you've got these homo sapiens sapiens upstarts that are becoming too sophisticated technologically beyond other set like psychological sophistication or uh, you know um, emotional spiritual even or whatever and they've got these tools and toys that they're poised to potentially damage the planet with if they're actually in under us i mean that explains even better than the extraterrestrial hypothesis why they would be interested and, and attempt to interfere and warn us and shut down our missile silos as they've been reported to do from time to time or even taken out test missiles um, and uh, just in case they're real or there's been examples and testimony of that as well, that they've like or, intercepted our missiles. Or perhaps it has nothing to do with missiles at all. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, as we uh, continue to pump oil and things out of the ground under the seas and gas and quarry, our, our minds go deeper and deeper and... Uh, or, you know, maybe it's also climate change as the, these giant ice caps are melting, you know, maybe, maybe they only, you know, built their structures to maintain X amount of cubic volume of water. And now that's being damaged. And, you know, so it, it could just be uh, uh, the same reason that there's more bears and cougars encountering humans is that uh, we, we've encroached on their territory. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I agree. Yeah. The, all of those elements come into play for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, the, these people, um, talking about us encroaching on their territory, you know, that they have what you might call facilities or habitations or dwellings or whatever you want to call them underneath national parks, state parks and military zones, uh, like our own military zones, like let's say, you know, uh, famously, you know, Nevada, uh, the Creech Air Force Base. Uh, uh, Area 51 and the surrounding what was called Nellis Air Force Base and all that kind of stuff where Charles also the tall whites were present there but then also Area 51 falls within it um, but then 
national parks and state parks around around the world where they inhabit underground facilities depending on how warm it is. So they, they move around and chase the seasons and chase the heat, chase the warmth. But they have these facilities that are sometimes got a, a lot of people in them or sometimes they're just manned by a skeleton crew or maybe even empty sometimes. But um, if there's if there's a population represented there of these sea cryptoterrestrials, this is when stuff can start hitting the fan, you know, and uh, and some missing 411 cases are attributable to them, especially in regards to hunters um, going missing, uh, where they've been killed because they were perceived as being aggressive and malicious in intent. They may have fired on one of the children. Uh, they can be lethal in these ways. Um, and uh, then you get cases like Skinwalker Ranch, like we were talking about before, where the evidence seems quite clear that they are there in the Mesa or under the under the earth there somewhere. That they've got some kind of habitation there. They don't want Homo sapiens ranches with guns and dogs anywhere near their kids or anywhere near where they are trying to do research or basically just exist and live and come to the surface sometimes to go for walks in the park or whatever um, or in the woods. Uh, if they perceive someone as a threat, a family, uh, like let's say as they read a person's mind, as they read people's mind, so someone comes to, buys a new ranch, it's a new family, they get there, there's evidence to suggest that the last family maybe were haunted or something when they were there and driven out. The cryptoterrestrials read your mind, know exactly what you've done in your past, what kind of person you are, what kind of motivations you have, whether you're planning on using firearms and hunting in the forests nearby perhaps, setting traps, this kind of thing. If you're those kinds of people, or you own dogs, is another big aspect of it. They don't like dogs um, and are known to kill dogs, slash their throats with the claws. Uh, there's lots of cases of that. Skinwalker Ranch is one, but even Chris Bledsoe's case, where Chris Bledsoe, in the Fayetteville incident, um, Christopher Bledsoe from North Carolina, had the famous Fayetteville incident um, in 2007, uh, where he was taken on board a craft and his son also saw the beings and three other guys that they knew that were, they were fishing with also saw the beings. Um, but uh, back at his house, one of his dogs had its throat slit at one stage as well, um, and, but then was then invisibly healed, which seemed to be an accident. Thanks. But they are very, very nervous around dogs that can harm their children. And like I said before, if they get bitten by a dog, or if they get a, a broken bone or a bite or something like that, that's the end of them, or can possibly be the end of them. Much more, much more risky than if we got bitten by a dog. I have two um, um, two things. One is very grounded. The other might be a little bit more fanciful, but maybe not. One, you, you mentioned missing four one one. And I'm familiar with Missing 4-1. It's come up in the context of a, of a b bunch of different shows. But I believe the gentleman's name is Dan, was it Pielides? Pleiades? Pilates? Pilates. Right, not like the exercise Pilates, but it's close, Pilates. Um, and he has tracked, he's, he's, he has, he's kept track of missing persons reports from national parks, I think mostly federal, but maybe some state national parks in the U.S. I think he's expanded to some uh, around the world as well. And, you know, it's really shocking just how many people go missing. But he's not just giving you the numbers. Like, he's identified who who got found, you know, mauled by a bear or 
fell, you know, under an avalanche or in a snowdrift or whatever versus unsolved mystery, so to speak. So, you know, uh, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily promote anyone else, but if you want to check out Missing 401, Dan Pilates, um, I think that you should check it out. It's, it's interesting if nothing else. And the other thing may be more fanciful, but again, maybe not. Do you think that they're under these federal national parks, uh, these military bases, because there is some agreement, some treaty with governments that say, you'll be safe here. And maybe that's why they let companies log there and they let hunting, but they don't let, they don't have quarries there anymore. They don't, they don't, they usually don't have oil drilling or, or gas exploration there, even though those companies are mega powerful. Um, you know, so the, the, uh, you know, though there's been some give back in, in some Alaskan, you know, wilderness, maybe they don't live in Alaska, maybe they don't live under those mountains or whatever it is. Um, or maybe it was just a rogue president or whatnot. But, uh, Anyway, the bigger question is, is, is that just because, which is the chicken or egg? They made an agreement with the government, so they realized that these, these areas are safer for them. And they, and they just migrated there, uh, sort of, uh, not coincidentally, but because they, you know, it was, it was safer ground. Yeah. I think, uh, most of the places where they have these kinds of underground habitations, they've been there forever. That these were pre existing kinds of things. But, but they do have agreements uh, with, like, treaties or something going on with governments of the world or, or some over... I mean, I don't know how sort of conspiracy theory you want to get with some kind of overarching entity. You know, when I say entity, I mean, like, clandestine group or something that's running the show everywhere, like some kind of cabal. I don't know about that kind of thing. But um, but at least with, um, with governments of the world, yeah, it deals where there are people in the there are some people at high levels that do understand who these people are or, or, or at least have a fairly clear idea of who they are and what they are and what they're capable of, more importantly as well, um, that they that these beings don't necessarily play nice if they feel that you're encroaching on their territory or, or you are a threat um, and have been performing a juggling act like these kind, like the governments of the world or the... Or the or the players behind the government or whatever have been performing these kinds of juggling acts trying to keep some areas of the earth relatively free from homo sapiens sapiens from us interfering and wandering into them but at the same time not alerting us to the fact that the things are present that the dangers are there so they've got this sort of juggling where they say oh you know some people go missing in national parks now i'm not saying all the missing 411 David Politis cases are to do with crypto terrestrials. But in my opinion, some are, particularly hunters, and they get themselves in trouble for obvious reasons. Mm. They've, got, they've, got, they've got a lethal weapon that they're pointing around at things in the scrub, in the forest, and they get themselves into mischief. But, um, but And then there are a lot of other kinds of missing cases in the David Politis missing 411 world that um, can't be attributed, in my opinion, to these crypto terrestrials. But anyway, um, but if you've got places that you know really should be free, but but you don't want to alert people to there being a threat necessarily because that will, uh, you know, uh, awaken a kind of curiosity in people, you know, 
imagine if you said, you know, this so-and-so national park in the US uh, for these weeks in summer can have no tourists. And then another time of the year, they're like, now you're allowed to go there again. And then people notice, hold on a sec, there's other parts of the world as well where these national parks have been closed at certain times and people are like, what's going on here? I mean, this is going to alert people to their presence, I suppose. And also, maybe you could even work out their migratory patterns just alone from that, things like this. So it's, um, I think... Should make an app. Somebody should make um, an app for that. Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, that's the kind of thing that needs to happen. Like, if and when they become known to us, Really, one of the things that we have to work out here is where are we as Homo sapiens sapiens not really meant to go at different times of year so that neither they nor us have to be injured or, or die or just be in embarrassing circumstances or whatever. Uh, because at the moment, while it's a secret, this is this kind of thing can happen, you know. Right. You want to mitigate yeah. accidental first contact. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I have a little bit of sympathy for those people in the know who have been trying to keep this secret in a way and I know that's probably not what most people most people who, are, who want disclosure and they're demanding it and they really they think it should have happened you know 50 years ago and what are the governments doing and they're manipulating us and we just want to know the truth and it must be because there's vested interests in maintaining fossil fuel industries and they don't want us to have access to the advanced tech and all this kind of stuff because there's too many wealthy people you know pulling the strings now I'm cynical enough to think, yeah, that's probably true in one way. But there's also another side of it, which is, it's scary. This is pretty intense. This isn't just extraterrestrials that come and, you know, you know, take some uh, soil samples once every couple of years and, like, pick some roses and drop off a box of chocolates to the White House and then disappear again. These are dudes that are here. A lot of the interactions we've had with them over the years have been... Um, well, manipulative, of course, uh, but also um, incredibly scary. They have—they are basically the boogeyman. They have fueled our understandings of what are negative entities as well as positive in our world, in our folklore. Um, they've given birth, basically, to a huge amount of our belief systems in general, religions as well, in my opinion, religious systems. Um, but some people that read my book or that I talk to about this say to me, who wanted disclosure before, say to me, oh, hold on a sec. Now I understand why the governments of the world haven't talked about this and have been keeping it as secret as possible for as long as possible. I understand now. Maybe I don't want to know this anymore. Can I please unlearn it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I have a little bit of sympathy for the people running the show who haven't let this information out, who are worried and thinking, they're scared enough themselves that these creatures exist and these people exist with uh, with this unstoppable military force and advanced technology way below it, beyond anything we have. A, a, a small, much smaller population than we have, but that means nothing. Uh, the, it's basically like you know a wet trying to beat an elephant to death with a wet train ticket or something like that. Like right. we we have no hope against them in that kind of way. Uh, and um, so they're here whether we like it or not, and we may as well like it. And so the governments of the world in a position like that are just like, yeah, we'll sign treaties with you. What other choice do we have, basically? You know, And they'll try to get as much as they can for our species out of the deal and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's been obviously, well, I think it's obvious, but um, from what I've been 
learning and research isn't um uh but this is a weird dance that's been happening and it may not be a popular view to hold but it may have been necessary well i mean if you could go back to the uh, book of genesis when they talked about uh, encountering some peoples that were that were you know translated at some point to giants they said we were but grasshoppers before them um and you know a lot of people just take that literally as size uh but it, it like you said it could just be you know uh, you know there there can be a thou you know a million ants but there's they're still not really going to present a threat e even to me you know you just keep stepping on them um or run away whatever it is but uh so uh, you know the, a lot of people think the bible is full of allegory and parables and whatnot so i, I guess there we go um okay so i know that we that uh, we need to get to your actual encounters so but let's get to that and then you talk about that and, and then you can tell everyone obviously we'll repeat your book again and then the if you're if you're too, if your forthcoming book has a title yet we'll talk about that and, and and your channel you should let people know where they can find you on that but let's uh well i don't know do you want to let yeah tell us your channel and then the book now so that we don't forget later okay yeah cool um yeah my channel i have a youtube channel and it is just my name it is um uh, Ryan Musgrave Evans. And um, is the hyphen in the channel as well? Yeah. Okay, so between, yeah. it's Ryan, R-Y-A-N Musgrave, M-U-S-G-R-A-V-E hyphen Evans, E-V-A-N-S. Yeah. Um, and on that, I put, um, I've got an, on, an ongoing um, vlog, I suppose you'd call it, like uh, called Orion Ramblings that I do about once a week, which is basically me spieling at the camera. Um uh, talking about, you know, the, the crypto-terrestrials or things that are happening in the world of ufology or paranormal research and maybe weighing in a little bit on stuff sometimes. Um, uh, but also it has on it some old documentaries and things like that people might find interesting where I've got archived some interesting old stuff that I've found in other places that I've sort of, that's all, you know, out of copyright now that I've put on my channel for people that are interested. So it's all in one spot. But um, I used to be on social media and stuff, but I pulled the pin on that, so people won't, won't be able to find me there. But um, if people go to the About section in my YouTube channel and can prove they're not a robot by going down to Business Inquiries or whatever, my email's there. And anyone's welcome to send me an email if they have a question or I have something they think they'd like me to know about, add maybe to the research, have their own experiences. Um, and the book itself is called, yeah, Children of Orion, Finding the Crypto Terrestrials. Um, it's published through Flying Disc Press, Philip Mantle. Uh, but it, it's available on Amazon as a paperback, hardback, and ebook. And, uh, yeah, so cool. Uh, check it out if you're interested. And the forthcoming book, do you have a title yet or an anticipated publish date? I don't have a title yet. Um, and, uh, I don't really have an anticipated date either. I'm really in the thick of, of uh, gathering up enough resources and the different books that I need to, to research and, um, and, and writing notes and things like that. That's so fine. it's sort of in its infancy really, but, but the, that doesn't necessarily mean it won't, but sometime next year. Anyway, well, once inspiration so. strikes, you're a fast writer, but, uh, all right. So we'll, we'll wait for yeah. that. But, so. Uh, but yeah, you know, we've got the YouTube channel and the book. Is there any reason why you picked Orion? Because Orion obviously is tied to 
so much from alignment of the pyramids to Orion being Osiris, one of the, you know, the old Egyptian gods, but also often considered the Atlantean or the, the, the same as the Anunnaki, uh, I think Enki or whichever one was the nice one. Um, but uh, so yeah. much. So, any reason why you picked Orion? Uh, yeah, there is. Well, that's um, so. Yeah, this is an element that um, people who know what crypto terrestrial means might think is a contradiction if they see the cover of my book and it says "Children of Orion finding the crypto terrestrials." They they would have the the understandable uh, question: How can they be indigenous to the planet if they're from Orion? Which is, of course extrasolar constellation um well the answer to that is that i show in the book there's evidence in modern ufology and in the cases that the tall whites from have spent a considerable amount of time even though they're originally from here they left earth and have spent a considerable amount of time on an earth-like planet orbiting al-nalam or epsilon orionis which is the middle star of orion's belt um now, the symbol of Orion's belt, like the, the layout of the three stars of Orion's belt, um, Al-Natak, Al-Nalam, and Mintaka, um, are represented and recur uh, through different cases uh, relating to these beings. Now, um, so although they're indigenous to Earth originally, they are from a future where humans have left Earth and have gone to Orion, and they have returned to this ancient Earth. So they still consider themselves to be Orions to have this affiliation and connection to Orion, and they even still use the symbol of the three stars and the layout of Orion's belt with a few little glyphs that represent each star as something like their flag, which is a so if you, if you look up Antonio Villas Boas um, hieroglyphs or writing, if you just type that into Google, you'll find an image of something that the uh, contactee abductee Antonio Villas Boas claims that he saw over the door of the craft of the beings that he interacted with. Um, and this, these glyphs are repeated um, in other cases as well where the beings have explained to contactees where they're from and they show these same glyphs. These are the glyphs representing the three stars of Orion's belt, but it's particularly the middle star of Orion's belt that is the most important to them. Um, and the, the glyph for the middle star of Orion's belt looks to us like the Arabic numeral for a seven. It basically just looks like the number seven. It's not the number seven, it's their um, symbol, their glyph for that uh, planet is very important to them. Um, yeah, so, and also, and this can tie into talking a little bit about my own experiences as well. Um, when I was a kid and had experiences with some of these beings that I thought were harlequins, glowing tall, skinny beings that looked like maybe they had makeup on that were leaping up in the, out my garden at night when, they were, when I was a little kid, like four or five years old, when the rest of my family would be asleep and I couldn't wake them. I'd walk out into the garden or feel drawn out into the garden and they'd be these levitating beings leaping and like they were dancing and I thought they were harlequins. Um, the, the, the small ones would gallop about on all fours, but they were also dark ones that I thought were gargoyles that would watch and lean against fences and crouch. Um, and these are all beings that I've come to understand are the same beings, uh, the children, adults, and also military, like guards in these different kinds of suits. Um, but they said that they were the saucepan people to me when I was a kid. 
and I didn't really understand what that meant necessarily. Later on, as I got older, I came to understand that they were from Orion because the saucepan is Australian English for Orion, like slang for oh, Orion. Gotcha. Is the saucepan, but I didn't I didn't make that connection really early on when I just said we're the saucepan people, uh, and then later on I was like, oh, okay, hold on a sec, there's this connection with Orion, and I said to them as well when I was. I'm not sure how old it would have been, maybe in my teens or something like that. Well, I thought they were fairies or elves, but I, I was a bit confused, really, what was happening to me. A lot of missing time, abductions and things like that when I was a kid. Nothing like has happened later on since uh, in the past eight or nine years. But these kinds of things that are happening over my childhood. Um, uh, I'd said to them, you are us. You are too similar to us. You you have something to do with our past are you some kind of evolved like earlier form of us that's evolved in a different way sort of like my own sort of early attempt at like a crypto terrestrial hypothesis or something like that becomes more sophisticated for me now since i've read mac tony's and really gotten those kinds of ideas well shaped in their head but when i was a kid i was sort of having or a teenager i was sort of having these kinds of ideas myself sort of speculating and i said you are an earlier form of us and they said it is more complicated than that. And they didn't tell me any more then, but as I got older, they said to me, we are you, we are your future. So these tall beings with blue eyes um, that would whistle and chirp and bark and things like that, uh, that told me they were from Orion and that they were future, future versions of ourselves. So equipped with this kind of information, and, and then as I got older and started having more intense experiences that were more typically ET-like, you know, where, I mean, more, more what would be categorized as extraterrestrial contact where you're having, like, procedures and things like that done and there's these things with big eyes and uh, instruments and things like that. And I started making them these strong connections between fairies and aliens and things like that. But it was taking me sort of like a long time to forge these kinds of understandings as I was growing up. Um, but uh, so I had a general understanding, a picture of them as to who they were, that they were us from the future, that they have some kind of relationship with Orion, um, that, or the saucepan, um, that they are tall and fair, that they whistle and chirp and bark. So when I really started investigating ETs and came across Charles Hall's books, I was like, this is them. This is These are the dudes. Not only the whistling and chirping, the same kind of mental manipulation where Charles Hall talks about his mind clouding over and then entering into weird sort of zombie trance states where they'd control him and he'd be wandering around, uh, very suggestible sort of states, um, missing time and all this kind of stuff, um, and the same appearance and things. And I was like, okay. So I read Charles Hall's books and I was thinking, this can't be a coincidence. These are the same people, but I was interested to find that he thought that they were aliens. As I did more and more research, found more and more people that are having interactions with these people, um, even down to the point of, older males having pink eyes and things like that, finding that in other cases is very, very particular aspects of this race. Um, and and then the element coming in that they're time travellers being repeated in some of the cases and things like that as well. And I was like, okay. So I, I, for a while there I was um, trying to have a go at writing a book and it wasn't really working and I'd write some notes and then I'd lose the notebook and I'd sort of forget about it and then start writing it again. But it was in October 2019 that I sat down, opened up my laptop, and basically did a dump and 
produced the first draft of the book within three weeks in October 2019. Um, and then from after that point, of course, there was heaps of honing and, and, and adding to it and uh, um, uh, expanding on ideas and all that kind of stuff. But, um, um, but uh, yeah, once it actually... That's why I'm sort of not that worried about this book being written, the second book that I'm planning and then I've got sort of notes for on that. It'll happen when it's time for it to happen in an organic kind of way and I sort of can't really force it. But so I can I can research and I can sort of prepare the way for it. But, um, yeah, the... The most life-changing, well, the, the two most life-changing CT experiences that I've had myself is one that I, when I was just about to turn five, I would have been about a month away from turning five, and we, my family and I, my mum and, and my siblings went down to a local golf course where every year, about a week before Christmas, we would, um, uh, there was a pine tree wood. Um, Pinus radiata, like North American pine trees. The, this golf course down near our house had like a, a sizable uh, wood where we'd cut a tree, we'd just cut a branch off a tree and we'd use it as a Christmas tree. We'd take it home. But while we were down there, um, this particular year, uh, I saw something behind a tree. Um, it was this, it looked like it was almost made out of the bark of the tree. It had long fingers. It looked around one side, huge eyes. It had like a triangular shaped face. Uh, looked around one side of the tree, went to the other side of the tree and looked. I uh, said to my mum, what's that? And she said, that's just your siblings down further. And I could see them, my brothers and sisters, trying to get the cut the branch off the tree. No, they were heaps further away. This thing was much closer, like about 30 foot away maybe or something like that. It went from one side of the tree to the other. And then when my brothers and sisters came back, they couldn't see it either. So that sort of, that made me believe in fairies or tree spirits or something. So that was a formative event for me because that meant that I developed an interest in like Celtic um, paganism and uh, fair, the fairy faith and things like that that I really got into in a big way in my teens in particular. But I always thought, yeah, I know they exist because I've seen one. So now I'm going to research them, you know. But the, the ET kind of stuff, I hadn't really understood anything much about that early on. Um I didn't really have that many opinions on extraterrestrials or what they might be. Uh, I sort of had a vague understanding that they seem to, from reports, look more like us than perhaps they should. Uh, you know, you'd expect true aliens to have no sort of similarity to us, perhaps, um, or whatever. But so that was one very formative event. And the, the other one uh, happened to me in about 2013 or 2014 when, when my wife and I my kids moved back down to where I grew up and where I came from. And that's when I had a, an experience where I was standing out on our porch and our veranda. Um, I, felt, I felt myself in a weird state of mind. It was at night. I knelt down and I started rearranging glasses and, and uh, coins that were on the table and sort of categorizing them and lining them up in this sort of obsessive, compulsive kind of strange way, which is a state of mind that I've had many times since in interactions with them where they sort of zone you out and you start sort of doing strange, uh, random tasks. But um, I was kneeling on the porch at night and I got up and I was sort of had this feeling of complacency and, and uh, sort of like a critical functioning of my mind had been shut down or gummed up so that it wasn't that surprising to me that I was no, that I couldn't remember how I'd gotten there or what I was doing there. And then as I started to go back inside, I started to levitate and I was taken up 
around over the porch and then up into something and then I was lying on a bed and there was a woman sitting on the bed beside me with huge blue eyes uh, projecting like comfort or something. A tall being I took to be a male, I just felt instinctively it was a male and I couldn't really see their face. Really long fingers feeling around inside my mouth and checking my teeth. Um, moved around to the back of the bed and performed an intensely painful procedure of some kind up in the base of my skull, beside my, like in the hole where the vertebrae goes up into your skull. Massively painful. Never felt anything that painful in my life. Um, and then uh, a scan, something like a scan, and then different sort of visual images sweeping across my mind's eye where I couldn't actually see through my eyes anymore. And I was just having um, images of like, wilderness and, and the ocean and uh, deserts and all this kind of stuff flicking across. Um, so that experience, they're the two sort of most formative experiences that, that, that have really sort of caused like cosmological world shifts in the way I see the world. Uh, one, introducing concepts about fairies and elves to me. And then the other one, really helping to cement the idea that this all had a relationship with extraterrestrial, what would normally be considered to be extraterrestrial experiences. But, uh, yeah. And that there's a medical uh, or, I don't know, uh, breeding kind of uh, aspect to it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, the clinical kind of thing was a new sort of idea to me. Where, um, But the... Uh, and then it was a little bit later, I'm not sure how much later, where I'd had a couple of these kinds of experiences and I actually did what maybe you could call as a, as a CE5, a close encounter of the fifth kind, as Stephen Greer coined it, where it's, you know, a human-initiated contact, where you send out a message maybe to the beings to, to draw them to you or whatever. And I, I sort of had a, an ex, my first experience like that where I sent out a thought to them one night it's, it's good that you're allowing me to remember things. And I wasn't sure as well whether these experiences were of a new type or whether I've always had these, but they were just deciding now to let me to remember elements of them because they play with your mind, play with your memories, you know, of course, which is a big, you know, running theme through uh, abduction law and whatnot. But um, I said, that's, that's great that you're allowing me to remember things, but how about it's no longer this kind of medical thing. How about you come and visit me in my house and have a cup of tea with me, a cup of coffee or maybe a beer, and uh, you're welcome here anytime. And I was standing there one I don't know if it was that night that I said it. It was a night, maybe a couple of nights later, I'm not sure. Standing in my kitchen at night talking to my wife. And, uh, and we were having this animated discussion and we were getting along really well. And I can't remember the topic of the conversation, unfortunately. Um, and she was leaning against like the kitchen counter and I was, and then there was the kitchen table was between us and I was on the other side and we were both standing, we were both talking to each other. And then all, and we were there for a fair while. I don't know how long. It could have been an hour. It could have been 20 minutes. I don't know. Um, then I felt my mind start to fog over that, that kind of feeling where I was starting to lose something of my critical, critical functioning as well. I, um, I started to, moved down again and got onto all fours and crawled out of the kitchen and there was a basket of laundry and I started getting socks out of it and rolling them up into pairs and making a line out of them and then as I was doing that all of a sudden I started levitating up was taken out of there back into my bedroom where my wife my actual wife 
was asleep in bed still and I was taken over the top of her. They sat me down on the bed and they didn't even have time to lie down properly. I was up on one elbow and I was like, had, all of a sudden they'd released all of the mental manipulation. I was completely awake. And that's when I just started having like a, a fear response, adrenaline rushes, uh, panic, uh, which is something that I don't have anymore when, I'm, when these kinds of things happen. But at that time I was like really freaking out. And a voice said, clear voice, female voice said into the center of my mind, we just had a date. And then I felt adrenaline shoot me through me again. And she goes, I roll my eyes at you. <laughs> and I took that, I took that to be like a rebuke, a reprimand for that I should know better than to be that fearful, maybe. She goes, and then I heard foot, her walking, footsteps while I'm awake, walking through the house, open the front door, close it, and her footsteps going up the driveway. And then that was that was that. So and that was the first. So, that was the first kind of more personal interaction. And so, that was, I think, because I'd requested it. So, so the takeaway is, is this wonderful conversation that you had with your wife actually was not with your wife. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the screen, yeah. <laughs> I do have wonderful conversations with my wife, if she ever hears this. Right. You better, uh, you better say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, and also the kind of mental manipulation, which often in ufology is called like, when you think back on something and, they say, like, maybe it's a screen memory. People talk about maybe, you know, ETs making you think like you're having a conversation with a glowing owl or a cat or something like that, and it's really one of them, and they've replaced themselves in your memory or in the experience with something else um, that will freak you out less. I don't know. A talking owl is pretty freaky, I suppose. But, uh, but in this instance, when I thought back to the person who I was absolutely convinced was my wife, in the memory, she didn't even look like my wife. In the memory, so I, I remember in my memory, she was a tall, thin woman with huge blue eyes, short white hair, in a tight black outfit with this round thing on her chest, um, and with her arms sort of folded like that, leaning back. Uh, and so the idea that I could have possibly thought that she was my wife, uh, you know, we're, we're both fairly sort of pale people. You know, sort of, you know, pasty pale people, but we're not that white. Uh, she definitely wasn't my wife. But uh, so that was my first sort of uh, more of like a, uh, you know, a, a, a personal social meeting of races or something, rather than it being this sort of distinct clinical, uh, you know, um, detached uh, event. Well, it's safe to say that you are invested. So, uh, and, uh, and since you said this was your first, obviously that means it was not your last. And I'm sure that's probably going to be explored in this book and probably in the future book more. And, and, uh, I'm sure it's probably part of the vlogs and items like that. So really fascinating stuff. Good conversation, interesting things, interesting things to think about and posit about. Um, so some of it is uh, very alternate to, some of the stuff that we've heard before, but I think in some ways it, it threads the needle and, and, and reconciles. I mean, you know, sort of in this world, you've got your Graham Hancock followers and you've got your Zachariah Sitchin followers and this sort of uh, threads that needle. And, you know, also the quantum people who are big on the time travel. Well, it sort of all, you know, it sort of uh, put put makes it all just one round, Peg and you can fill it all together. So that's 
that's pretty cool also um so all right listen thank you so much for, for your time thank you for being with us this early on a monday morning it's it's uh we started at 8 a.m. his time, which I think he's 15 hours ahead of me. Um, so I appreciate that. Good luck with, with the present book. Good luck with the workings on the coming book. And uh, we'd love to talk to you again. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's given uh, me the opportunity. It's good fun. All right, great. I'd well, love to be back on again. Excellent. It's our pleasure. We'll look forward to, the, to that, you know, especially when your book is nearing completion or something else of, of some other superseding note comes in. Uh, you can always reach out to me directly or, or through uh, uh, Philip. That would be fine as well. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for coming into the garden. And, and listeners, we will uh, look forward to you tuning in again next week for another uh, fun-filled and interesting, informative, hopefully educational uh, encounter. So, once again, thanks very much. Everyone, enjoy the rest of your day or night or whenever you're listening to this download. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with GEICO or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with GEICO. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors.